click go live. Like maybe I should give it five more seconds and be more prepared. But oftentimes it's like I have to force myself, click the button, just just get on with it. Um, yeah. Hello. <laughs> and welcome to the daily Bible reading show. Uh, I realized that actually um, because I streamed this to different platforms, so you're either watching this on Facebook, uh, that's where most of my friends are. Uh, some of you catch this on YouTube and on Spotify. Um, those of you who listen to this uh, while you're doing your washing up, you listen to this on Spotify or on one of the podcast uh, channels. Uh, it's also on Twitch. No one watches it on Twitch. But actually, uh, it's the one on Twitch that I take the recording off and then that's the one that I publish as the podcast and also on Instagram. So a few of you watch on Instagram as well. But because of that, uh, you might not realize this, but there's this preamble of about five or 10 seconds, which you won't see if you're only catching this on the podcast or on uh, or on Twitch or on, sorry, on, on Instagram, sorry. And that's because Twitch somehow picks up the broadcast much later. And that's why I always start in a very random way. <laughs> because if I start too early, you know, you come in too late and you'll be wondering, you know, what's going on. Um, but the trade-off is my rambling goes on for on forever, and so, you know, it backfires. But sometimes I cut that out as well. So yeah, there you go. Anyway, hello. <laughs> uh, welcome to the daily Bible reading show. Uh, we are starting a bit early today because I'm hoping I'm hoping to be able to pick up where I left off yesterday in my preparation for this talk. I have coming up on Saturday. I'm speaking to the Chinese Christian. Cambridge Chinese Christian Fellowship, a bunch of students uh, here in Cambridge. Uh, I used to go to this fellowship, this student group, and I became a Christian through this group. Uh, and so I'm preparing the, for this talk from 1 John, uh, probably chapters 1 and 2. And I'm hoping to pick up where I left off yesterday to tell you a bit of my ideas I've had so far, some illustrations knocking about my head. Uh, but in order to do that, I have to get this done first. So we're going to do uh, the Daily Bible Reading Show and look at the four passages we have for today. They are Genesis chapter 37, Mark chapter 7, Job 3, and Romans chapter 7. Um, so today I'm going to use my Bible. So you can see this is my Bible. Uh, this is the same Bible I've used for some time because it's uh, the one that they use in the Chinese church. Uh, so so this way I would prepare and I know I can tell them to turn to page 197 and everyone would be on the same page and I could prepare from that same text. Uh, that doesn't apply now because everyone's using Bible Gateway. But yeah, I've been using this for a while. Uh, let me show you what I have uh, in store. So let's see on my Kindle. Yeah, so this is, this is coming up this Saturday. It's called Faith in Action. So this is the topic that they gave me. And it's with the Cambridge Chinese Christian Fellowship. There they are. And um, yeah, also, also worth uh, mentioning that Story Cambridge is coming up. This is a mission uh, by the Cambridge KQ. What does KQ stand for? Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union. The CU for the university. And that's coming up on Sunday, I think. So yep, um, see you guys in a few days as we look at 1 John together. Faith in action. Okay, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunities to come together as your people and to hear your word read. Uh, pray for this podcast and pray also for this coming Saturday. I pray that 
whoever is listening, whoever comes, will be encouraged. They will hear your voice.、Uh, help me to prepare in a way that glorifies you, to be clear, and to point towards Jesus Christ. And help all of us to understand, such that we will be able to obey and to apply everything that you say to us in your Word by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first passage is Genesis chapter thirty-seven. There we go. The only problem we're doing this is that you know、uh, it's angled. Can't really look at it properly, so I have to look at it at the corner of my eye. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we go. Joseph's dreams. That's the heading in Genesis chapter thirty-seven in my NIV Bible. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of seventeen, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him.、Uh, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more, Than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, and they hated him all the more, he said to them, "Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it." His brothers said to him, "Do you intend to rule over us?、Uh, will you actually?" Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Sorry, I'm just checking that I didn't skip a verse when I looked up. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're okay. Verse nine. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, "What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground because before you?" His brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept the matter in mind. Verse twelve. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, "As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem." Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied.、Uh, so he said to them, "Go and see." Said to him, "Go and see if all is well, your brothers, and with the flocks, and bring word back to me." Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, "What are you looking for?" He replied, "I am looking for my, for my, for my brothers." <laughs> Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here. The man answered. I heard them say, "Let's go to Dothan." So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer! They said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that his ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. 
Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him after all. He is our brother and our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came, to, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the blood and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in the morning I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Okay. Just looking for a pen. Yeah, okay. Here we go. Okay, let's look at this. Um, what do we see here? We see Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, being envied uh, by his brothers. They're jealous of him uh, for two reasons. Um, his father obviously favors him. <laughs> there's, there's this favoritism going on. His dad loves him because apparently it's the son of his old age, you know, born of him in his old age. Um, and so he gave him this special robe, this special clothing that could either mean it was very colorful or had very long sleeves. Either way, it was something that he gave him and none of the other brothers. Now, there was this big age gap, of course, so he was much younger also. The rest had to work in the fields, you know, in the hot sun. And oftentimes his dad would send him kind of like to inspect them and to report back on them. And apparently in one of these instances, he came back and brought his father a bad report. So that's, that's one thing. <laughs> I mean, here is their younger brother, baby brother, who is loved more by their father than all of them combined and saying bad things about them by, behind their backs. And they were the ones who, do, who were doing all the work. You know, and he gets to wear this nice, comfortable robe and stay at home with daddy. Um, I said there were two reasons, so that's one reason. And the second reason is his dreams. They call him a dreamer. And twice he tells them of these two dreams, uh, basically in both of them, them bowing to him, that he will rise up and be more powerful than them. And they will bow down to him almost in worship, in acknowledgement of his authority and power over them. In the second dream, he mentioned the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. And this is significant because it's symbolic 
Well, his dad figures out it's symbolic of dad and mom also bowing down before their son. And is and the dad says, you know, are, is this actually going to happen? Do you actually expect us, your mother and I, to bow down before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his dad kind of like, you know, kept this thing in mind. I think. Uh, remembering that his dad was younger of the two sons, you know, he was uh, not supposed to inherit this blessing, being the younger son, but he kind of like tricked his older brother Esau, and so he's seen this pattern before that God often, you know, favors the weaker, the younger, the more humble before him. Uh, but Jacob doesn't seem very humble. <laughs> Sorry, not、uh, Joseph. Joseph, he seems.、Um, Childish, maybe, maybe a bit proud.、Uh, he realizes that he's loved, and you know he, the fact that he gave this bad report about his brothers, you know, shows that, you know, he is,、um, I don't know, maybe he takes himself too seriously. Maybe he, he, you know, there's no mercy. <laughs> he reports, you know, those guys did those those kind of things. Okay, so as a result, they they. They initially want to kill him,、uh, but what happens is they sell him to、uh, these slaves,、uh, these Midianite sla- slave traders, who then sold him to、uh, Pharaoh in Egypt.、Uh, but、um, Reuben, the oldest, initially s- tries to say, "Oh, let's not kill him. Let's put him into this well, this cistern in the ground that had no water." And his plan was always to go back to rescue him. Except when he was gone, they sold him. And so when he came back, he went, "Oh no! What I'm going to do? I'm going to explain, explain this to Dad." And so they come up with this ruse. They they、um, dip、uh, the jacket, the coat of many colors, into the goat's blood, and then gave it to Dad. And then they just let him run with his imagination. And so Jacob thinks, "Oh no! An, a wild animal has torn my son." And so he starts mourning, and nothing they do could comfort him. He says, "You know, I'm going to die together with my son. I'm going to go down to, to, to Sheol. Where does he say that? In mourning, I will go down to the grave to Sheol to my son." So he wept for him. So yeah, so that's the story. What do we learn from this?、Um, well, from this and so far in all throughout Genesis and this story of Abraham and his descendants, you realize there isn't really like a bad guy. You know, yes, you get. People like Esau wants to kill Jacob for stealing his inheritance from him, and yes, you have the devil in chapter three who tempts Eve. But really, the people who seem to be doing all these evil things are your own family members, and that's so tragic. His own brothers, you know, try to kill Joseph. You know, his father. You know, lavishes love on this youngest son, but in a sense also ignores all the other sons that he has, and so here we we see this internal family strife, <laughs> and that's that th- this this is family drama that we are reading in, in Genesis, and it's just to the end degree. You know, such as this drama that they would be willing to kill one of their own, and in other words, you know, they're the bad guy. Or I'm the bad guy, you know. I I'm capable of the same kind of hatred and jealousy and envy of people whom I ought to be loving and caring for and looking out for. You know, I, I I'm very very capable of doing this horrible thing to the people closest to me. And that's the thing about 
jealousy and envy, isn't it? You know, it's one of the commandments. You know, not to envy your neighbor, not to covet your neighbor's things. And the thing is, you know, you're not envious of、uh, Bill Gates、um, the same way that you're envious of your younger brother or your sister, that kind of thing. Because you know, with Bill Gates, you know, you'll you'll never get there. <laughs> you you'll never, you know. You might say, "Oh, you know, how's how's he blessed so much?" And I, I am not. But then, you know, everyone says that. But when someone who's close to you does a little bit better than you,、um, someone who、uh, you went to school with, or someone you know you work with, and they get a promotion and you don't, or your sibling, you know, does better in school than you gone to that university and you didn't, that's when that jealousy and that envy. Of someone close to you that causes you to then, you know, hate that person more than you would a stranger. You know, want you you are more capable of acting out, and you have more opportunity to commit that act because that person is closer to you. And that's the tragedy of this story. You know, the people who try to kill him are not his enemies, but his brothers and people from his own family. And that just shows the deceptiveness and the reality of sin of. Of of jealousy of、um, of life, you know, it's it, it's 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 real. It's much closer to home than we realize, and it's essentially me. It it's how each and every one of us have that same potential,、um, given the opportunity and given the circumstance to do the same things that the Yus brothers did.、Um, Yeah, I, and I I think that's why it's it's so interesting to read through the stories of Genesis because it's just reading real life stories of family drama, of family breakdown between brothers and sisters, between、uh, fathers and their wives. You know, Jacob and his two wives. You know, competing with one another for his love.、Uh, between fathers and sons. You know, his father saying, "You know, will I bow down to you?" And it's that combination of. Pride and hatred and envy and jealousy, amongst people whom we should have love and compassion and mercy, and we should rejoice with them when they are blessed, and we don't. We can't do that because at the heart of it is a heart that says, "I, I am the one who should be blessed. I'm the one who should be doing the best compared to everyone else. You know, you should be lower than me." And that's the essence of sin. Essentially, we are saying that to God. That I should be God, not you, God. I should be getting the glory, not you. At the end of the day, you know, you shouldn't be praised. I'm the one who should be praised. So, yep. So Genesis chapter thirty-seven. Cool. Let's move on to the next reading, Mark chapter seven. This is kind of awkward. Is it like, yeah? <laughs> is this how do I how do I do this? Okay, here. <laughs> Yeah, still getting used to this setup. Cool. Here, seven chapter seven. Here we go. Okay, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Holding to the tradition of the elders, when they came come from the marketplace, they do not eat. Unless they wash and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. I have a footnote here for cat- kettles. It says here possibly dining couches. <laughs>、uh, 
Um, so the Pharisees, verse 5, and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So let's just pause here and see what's the criticism of these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. They're coming to Jesus, complaining about his disciples. So they saw Jesus and his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. And you would think, you know, washing hands, that's a good thing, right? You know, hygienic to wash your hands before you eat something. Um, but it goes on to explain how this washing is not a hygiene thing, but a traditional thing, not a hygiene thing, but um, a ceremonial thing. Uh, uh, here, uh, the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. So this washing is, is doing something more than making your hands clean. It's making your, I don't know, your soul, your, 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 your body clean in a way that's acceptable before God. Hence, they clean their um, what cups, pitchers, and kettles and especially after they come from the marketplace. So they come from the marketplace because the marketplace would be a place where there would be people other than Jews. There'll be other non-Jews there and they don't know something I touched someone who is not a Jew and therefore I will become ceremonially unclean. And so I need to wash myself of all these non-Jewish people before I can then eat this food and become ceremonially clean. So that's why they say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? You know, why don't they follow these rules that have been set in, you know, in history that you're meant to do this? I guess the, the equivalent would be like saying grace. You know, why don't, why don't they say grace before eating meals? You know, saying grace is a good thing, uh, but sometimes it can turn into a liturgical kind of traditional thing. That, oh, you didn't say grace. And then, and then they call you out and they embarrass you. And I guess that's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to embarrass Jesus with his disciples. Oh, your disciples, you know, they're breaking these rules. And they're expecting Jesus to say, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, I'll, I'll go and scold them after this. Jesus, <laughs> verse 6, instead of scolding his disciples, scolds them. Verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right. When he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with my lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And that's what he's equating all these traditions with. These are rules taught by men and not taught by God. And what's interesting here is he says these people, they can honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far away from God. It's possible, you know, come to church and everyone is honoring God with their lips. I mean, they're singing like worship songs, you know, at, oh, I love you, Lord, and I worship you, God, and you are the father of all and you're God of everything. Thank you for saving me. But in their hearts, they're going, oh, I hate you. <laughs> that's, that's the strange thing. And that's why he calls them hypocrites. You know, they're just play acting. And so all this ceremonial thing, you know, in, in other words, it's a show. They are doing this as a show to make everyone else see just how holy they are and how everyone else except them is very unholy, breaking the rules. Hence what they are doing, they're criticizing these guys who don't seem to follow the rules. 
And he goes on that, you know, Jesus could have stopped here. You know, you guys are hypocrites, but he goes on. He, he makes a teaching lesson out of this instance. Verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of man. Uh, this is interesting because it's not just they're putting God's word here and they're adding on more rules, but they're pushing out God's word in order to obey their own rules. That's the dangerous thing about elevating these traditions. In a sense, they become God's word to you and God's word becomes nothing to you. Verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside, again, letting go, setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify, you cancel out the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like this. What's going on here? Um, honor your father and mother, good thing. You know, kill the person who curses his father and mother. It sounds like an extreme thing, <laughs> but essentially it's saying it's such an important thing in God's eyes that you honor your parents, that you consider them, you know, with the kind of respect and the love and the devotion that you should have for them because it's a mirroring of how you should be honoring God. It, 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 God has given you those parents to look after you and should honor that. But they've come up with this loophole. Essentially what they say is, you know, I was, they said, whatever you might have received from me is korban. In other words, they're using God as an excuse not to honor their father and mother. So it would be bad enough if they said, oh, I don't want to give you this money. I don't want to give you this love. I don't want to give you this devotion. But instead, he used God as an excuse not to do this thing. They say, oh, this thing is korban. That means I'm going to give it to church. I'm going to give it to ministry. And therefore, I can't give it to you. And what's, what's going on here is they want to do this evil thing, but they still want to look good. They want to do this wicked thing, but they want to blame God for the wickedness that they're getting away with. And he's saying, you know, what are you doing? You know, this is doubly evil because you're blaming God for the evil that you're doing. And he says, thus you nullify the word of God. You don't do what God wants to do. You do this evil thing that, you don't, that you're not supposed to do and you blame God. You say God is telling you to do this evil thing. That's horrible. Yeah. And he says, you do many other things like this. I mean, this is just one example, the tip of the iceberg. Verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. So here Jesus is now not just speaking to the Pharisees, he's speaking to everyone else, you know, big crowd. He says, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. That is um, interesting, interesting. Because, you know, everything else Jesus says after this, he says internally, secretly to his disciples. All he says to the crowd is, nothing that goes in, no food that you eat, can make you ceremonially unclean. That's why he has this, like, parentheses on it. Um, it's saying that, you know, it's not going to change your heart, but only what comes out of you can make you unclean. And I honestly, honestly, you know, if that was all you heard from Jesus, you'd think he was talking about, you know, stuff that comes out of you in the toilet. Isn't <laughs> it? Like, oh, it's a gross, it's such a gross analogy you're giving us. Oh, yes, I agree with you. That would make me unclean. 
Um, which is why I think the disciples ask him the meaning of this because they, they get it. It must, it can't, he just, Jesus can't just be talking about this pool <laughs> that comes up, makes you unclean. So everyone knows that. That's so obvious. Um, he must be talking about something more than that. And so verse 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciple asked him about this parable. And he says, are you so dull? They so ngong ngong kuey. He said, he said, are you so stupid? idiot and then I think probably if I was there I would go oh sorry yes I'm quite stupid yeah and Jesus kind of scolds them because they still don't get it that Jesus is talking about something to do with their heart to do with this kind of posture in terms of obedience and wanting to obey God's laws rather than using all these other laws to cover up the stuff that you don't want to do so he says to them don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So in a sense, Jesus is talking about poo. <laughs> it goes into the into your into your body, goes into your stomach, and it, it gets expelled out. Like kind of like a pipe. Everything goes out. You know. But that's half of the story. He's saying whatever you eat doesn't stay in your body in a sense. That's why it doesn't make you unclean. It's just food. It's just stuff that goes in and comes out the other end. But he goes on, verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For what, for from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So here inside, you see, is connected with men's hearts. And by hearts, it's just not just talking about this thing, this organ in our body. It's talking about ourselves, our character, our minds, you know, who we are. And what we are is this factory that produces these lists of things, you know, sexual immorality, theft, murder, evil thoughts, adultery, lewdness, slander, arrogance, folly. Everything that comes out of it is this, this stream of just evil, 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 evil. And once we had a Bible study on this and one of my friends said, you know, if I asked you to complete this sentence, out of men's hearts come dot, 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 uh, the average person would say out of the person's heart comes imagination or, you know, um, beauty and appreciation poetry you know comes out of your hearts you know or you sing to someone from your heart it comes love you know we think that the heart is a source of so many good things and tremendously beautiful things and imaginative things but here jesus says nothing that comes out of your heart is nothing but evil and evil actions and evil thoughts and evil intentions you know everything here is horrible and horrible and horrible uh, I told this illustration once before when we were looking at the same kind of like passage in Matthew's gospel. I saw I was I was cycling down the road and then they stopped traffic. And so I was, I was right in front of this uh, police officer stopped me in the mid traffic and out of the side of the traffic came out all these cyclists because there was this event of all these cyclists cycling through town in Cambridge that day and it was nude cyclist day. So all I saw coming out in front of me through the side of the road were butts and butts and butts and butts. 
<laughs> non-stop for about five minutes. And it's what Jesus is describing in our hearts. Out of our hearts, what he sees coming out of it is just this stream of evil thoughts and evil actions and evil intentions non-stop from the inside of our hearts. And Jesus is saying that's us. And that's what defiles us. That's what causes us to be uh, unclean before God. Let's carry on. Um, verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as uh, she heard about it, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. What happened to my phone okay her daughter first let the children eat all they want he told her for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs yes lord she replied but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs then he told her for such a reply you may go the demon has left your daughter she went home and found her lying her child lying on the bed and the demon gone um some things to notice tire uh, is not in Israel. So this is a Gentile woman. And uh, she's described as a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. And so here is Jesus uh, essentially healing the daughter of someone who is not of the people of God. And so he was, which is not surprising because he is walking around in this area that was not in Israel. But he wanted to keep it a secret so he didn't want anyone to know, which makes it more impressive that this woman who, you know, never went to church, you know, doesn't believe in the same God as Jesus, you know, heard that Jesus came and she intentionally sought him out. You know, she really looked out for him. She was searching for him. Have you seen this Jesus around? You know, he's, he's keeping a low profile, but she's hunting for him. And when she finds him, she falls to her feet and she begs him, please, you have to drive this demon out of her daughter. And, you know, you have to wonder what, 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 what convinces her that Jesus able to and is willing to help her because you know she is essentially like a non-christian never been to church before coming down and bowing down before god saying you know please please help help my daughter you know i've i've you know i work in a hospital um we have a chapel there uh, i've i i've seen this you know parents for the love of their children literally crying out in tears before god is please would you heal my child and sometimes they even bring their child there with them uh, it's very, very tragic, very, very uh, heartbreaking. And when you see that, uh, something in you goes, God, please help this woman. Uh, which makes it more shocking what Jesus says to this woman who is bowing down and begging him at his feet. He says to her, first, let the children eat all they want. And he says, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. So there's children there's dogs, and there's this bread. He said, you want this bread, but this bread is meant for them, as for the children. I can't just take this bread and give it to you. In other words, he is saying the you here in this story is the dogs. You know, this is dinner meant for my kids. Imagine your mom, you know, cooking, slaving over the stove, preparing this beautiful dinner, you know, and taking this dinner, laying on the, on the table, 
and saying, "Na achai, you know, everyone, all come, come eat, eat food. Time, time to eat food." And they sit down, and as they're about to eat it, she takes the food and throws it out the door, <laughs> out the window, and all the dogs come and go, going, going, they going eat up the food. And he says, "That's not right. You know, that's wrong to do that. In other words, you know, you can't do that. You know, it's meant for them." But if you want me to give you this healing, that's essentially what you want me to do. I'm taking away from them and throwing it to you, who don't deserve this. And she says something equally shocking. She says, "Yes, Lord." Says, "Yes, you know, I know that I don't deserve this, and yes, I know that you are the Lord. I know that you are the one who has this." But she says, "But, but even the dogs under the table." table Eat the children's crumbs, and she's describing a situation whereby the children are, you know, eating, you know, have it, they're eating like say this cookie, cookie here, and they're eating it, and you can, if you can see like the crumbs underneath this cookie cookie jar, you know, the crumbs as they're eating it falls off out from their mouths, <laughs> falls onto the table, and they go f- push it off the table, and the dogs go eat those crumbs. Yeah, and he says, you know. She wants the leftovers. She wants the crumbs. She's not asking. She knows. In other words, she's she's not asking for a place at the table. She knows she doesn't deserve that, but she's asking for what you know. Maybe even the children don't want. You know, if it, it falls on the ground and a child tries to pick it up, the mom would say, "Don't don't eat that. That's dirty." But the dog eats it up. Say, "Oh, good. Yeah, help help me. Less gleaming later on." And she says, you know, I, I just want whatever has fallen off the table, the leftovers, the stuff that no one else wants. And Jesus says, for such a reply, you may go, and the demon has left your daughter. And she went home, trusting that Jesus had healed her daughter, and went home and found her daughter well. This is, by the way, one of the most powerful miracles that Jesus has done. You might not realize this that everyone else, if you remember, with all the healings, he has to touch them. He has to. Uh, even with the one with with the the Jairus's daughter, you know, he lifts it up by by the hand. But here, Jesus heals by remote control. He just says, "Okay, all right, it's done. That's it." And he really shows the extent of his power to this woman. And essentially, what he does is he acknowledges that this woman understands something about who he is, and his grace, and who she is, and her unworthiness. That. She maybe understands this better than everyone else. She understands that none of us, not even <laughs> us who call ourselves children, you know, we don't deserve this grace from Jesus. And yet, what she does is she begs from him and begs and begs and begs, and she says, you know, you deserve this. Here you go. Um, there is a guy named uh, Cranmer. He was Archbishop of uh, Canterbury, and he wrote a prayer for communion that incorporates the story. Uh, and in my church, at least before we take communion, we often say this: the words of this prayer is that we do not presume to come before you, merciful Lord, to take this bread and to drink of this cup, but we, um, but we do not even deserve to eat the crumbs from your table. And and it's talking about these crumbs, is that we are even we are even less deserving than this woman. In other words, you know, we, we as Christians should see. That we are less deserving than this woman, woman in coming, to, coming to to the Lord's table. Let me say that. Yet, yeah, and the prayer goes on. Yet, you are a merciful Lord who delights in doing good and showing mercy, and therefore, you know, it's it's coming to Jesus with this kind of posture. I don't deserve this, but you are merciful. I am unworthy, but you are good, 
and Jesus responding with the fullness of his grace and his goodness and his compassion towards us the same way that he did, did for her. Sorry, my camera is like glitching. <laughs> yeah, need to find a way of fixing that. But yeah, so that's um, that's the Syrophoenician, you know, non-Christian, you know, non-church-going woman who receives mercy from Jesus. Let's finish this up. Verse 31, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon and down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There are some people, there are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly speak. And they begged him to place his hands on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about him. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So yeah, that's Mark chapter 7. Lots of healing, uh, which is again uh, showing overtones of Jesus coming to save. These healings are for people who are really, really, you know, you know, of, of illnesses that they can't cure themselves. But in the same way that salvation comes from to people who can't save themselves. So Jesus comes to heal and to save, shows his authority to do both. Also, again, shows the uh, responses of both. You know, here in Sidon and Tyre, these are both Gentile territories. You know, these are the people whom he heals. These are the people who understand who he is. In contrast to his disciples who are dull. You know, are you so dull? <laughs> are you so blur? We would say in Malaysia. And actually, again and again, we see that the disciples who are closest to Jesus have no idea who he is. But all these outsiders, these people who, you know, where did they come from? Why are they, you know, being healed by Jesus? Why are they showing mercy? They are the ones who seem to get who Jesus is. And we'll see that again and again in Mark's gospel. Okay, all right. So that's Mark. What's our next chapter? Job chapter 3. Let's go back to Job. Uh... Job chapter 3. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. Oh, wow, lots of like poetry. Okay, there we go. Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish. And the night, and the night it was said, A boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May low light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day those who are ready to rouse the Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? And why uh, were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? 
for now I would be lying down in peace, I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food, my groan pours out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. This, this last few words, no peace, no quietness, no rest, no turmoil. This anguish that just keeps going on and on that he wishes that he were dead. That, that's his cry. You know, he curses, oh, not God, doesn't go that far. He curses the day of his birth. So hard is his life right now that he wishes he was never born. And so he begins by cursing that day when everyone thought it would be a good day. You know, here comes a baby. But he wishes that that day never existed, that it was wiped out from history if it were possible. And he says, why didn't I even die at birth? You know, um, you know it's being stillborn, no, at least, you know, if I, were, if I died immediately, I would be at rest. I would be with all these other kings. You know, I'd be freed from the slavery of life. And here's a man who is really, really in pain, who is speaking, in a sense, out of turn. He is, he is not cursing God, but in a sense, you know, he, he, he is not saying very nice things about God who gave him life. You know, he gave him a fairly good life, you know, gave him so much riches. And it's just at the moment, all he's experiencing is this death. You know, he's been mourning for seven days for the death of his, all his children, the loss of all uh, his blessing. His own wife is telling him to curse God and to die. And he's held his integrity up to this point. And, you know, a, a man like this, you know, could have mourned at so many points in chapter 1 and chapter 2, not least when his uh, children died and said all these things and you would almost understand where, where he was coming from. But I think he says it here because he realizes that all this can only happen because of God. You know, why did God allow this to happen to me? That's what he's saying. Um, if you have a friend like this, you know, can I just say that don't be surprised if this comes out of the mouth of your most um, Christian friend. <laughs> In fact, I, I would argue that only Christians 
can really mourn and maybe even rail against God in this way. Because if you only ever believe in a God who is so good and so powerful, and you experience this, there is this disjoint, there's this disquiet in your soul that goes, Why, God, have you allowed this to happen? And if you're that friend, uh, expect this and maybe don't interrupt them. You know,、uh, it will be very, very tempting to go, Oh, you know, oh, maybe you shouldn't say that. You know, that, that's wrong. That's theologically wrong. Or, you know, how can you, you're supposed to be a Christian. You're, you're, you're a Bible study leader. Maybe even you were a pastor. Now you're saying all these things. You know, that's just wicked. You know, aren't you worrying about discouraging all the younger Christians? And, you know, maybe it might be worth when you hear these things to kind of like hold your tongue and maybe enable them to kind of like get it out. <laughs> To, to almost pray this out and to be the friend who hears them out when they say these things. It is so painful and so horrible to grieve in this way. And the truth is, I think now is a time when many people are feeling this way. And the thing is, they might not have that friend to be able to tell these things to. You know, why not be that one exception who will be with them, who will mourn with them, and who will cry with them? And there will come a time for. You know, then、um, for the questions and the answers.、Uh, but for now,、um, now it, it, it's just for you to, to hear what's going on and to just offer as much comfort and just offer your presence and your friendship as best as you can.、Uh, these things happen. People do say stuff like this. And these come from the most godly and the most loving of Christians. And it's, it's, it's just part of that process of grieving. Um, don't be surprised.、Um, be there for them, love them. And um, yeah, um, and I think, I think then they will know that you're, you're essentially a good friend if you do this. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's see. Let's go to our last reading. That was short. That was good.、Um, I don't know anything else I should say about this.、Um, well, no one else says anything. That's why I'm, 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 I don't feel that I have to. Uh, I think it's just a reflection of、um, what's in his heart. And, and、um, it, I mean, friends, I mean, imagine your pastor saying these words. Can you, can you imagine that?、Um, imagine your Bible study leader、uh, saying these words.、Uh, when that happens, you should not be going, How can you say that? But you know, what, what's actually happened? How much pain you must be going through to be voicing your frustrations in this way? And you know, it should make you empathize and pray for them even more. Okay, all right, that's it. That's, it. that's, that's all I'm going to say about this. <laughs> Romans chapter 7. If I can find Romans, there we are. Romans chapter 7, yay. Okay, if I hold it up this way, can you still see? Yeah, just, this angle is so weird, it's very hard to read. Okay. Yeah, okay, that, that, that's just about right. Okay. Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So, illustration of. How、uh, law is binding only in life. 
So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So that's the illustration. You know,、uh, if she is alive, she is not allowed to marry because, as the law says, you are still married to that person. But once the husband dies, that law, that binding、uh, stipulation that binds her within that marriage, that's broken. So in death, the law no longer applies. So verse four. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So there's a double illustration here. There is the illustration of how the law is only binding in life, but in the same way that when she dies, she's no longer bound to her first husband. So now you've died to the law. You are now bound to another. You're bound to another, to Him who raised from the dead, in order to Christ, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So there's an illustration of the law, but also of marriage. Verse five: For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our body, so that we bore fruit for death. So that's connection here: bearing fruit to God, but in the past we used to bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us to the law, to sin, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in this new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. And the idea of this code of this law is that you're trying to fulfill it. You know, the law says do this, 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 this. You do it. The law says don't do that, and so you try to avoid it. And that's how you try to obey the law. You're trying to bear fruit to it, but it actually, what, what all it does is actually we all we end up being controlled is by the sinful nature. How does that work? We'll find out more later. And therefore, we bear fruit to death. So the law produces in us this fruit. Imagine this tree that grows up, and then it grows and grows and grows and bears fruit. That fruit is death. But this other way of life, now that we are dead to the law, this other way of living is that we grow and we bear fruit. That in the way of the spirit, and this is different. You're not working for it. It rather the spirit bears fruit in us, and we bear fruit to God. Verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. So it's following from this, you know, because he says the law, you know, produces death, and therefore causes us to be controlled by the sinful nature. So does that mean law equals sin? So he says no. No, it doesn't mean that. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting what really was if the law had not said, "Do not covet." But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So here it's talking about how sin almost manipulates us into thinking that we can obey the law. But actually tricks us into then producing death. How does that work?、Uh, 
uh, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So here it is. So the law, he gives an example. You know, the law says, do not covet. Do not covet. But, <laughs> but sin, seizing the opportunity, produces more coveting. <laughs> That's weird, right? It's all, and, and you have to think about this in order to, you know, it's almost like, um, how do I say this? Imagine a parent and a child. And the parent says, uh, don't take this cookie. Okay, so there's a cookie here. And before you, even, before you didn't even notice that there was a cookie there. But your dad says, don't eat this cookie. And then the moment that your dad says this, you go, oh, wow, this cookie looks so good. And more than that, because your dad says, don't eat this cookie, you think, who are you to tell me about how much cookie I can eat? Or you go, rrr, 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 and you become the cookie monster. You see, that, that's, that's what happens. So you don't even take notice of it. But when God is telling you, don't do this thing, because God tells you to do, sin inside you says, hey, you know, I want to tell myself what I want to do. And then it produces even more covetous desires. I'm going to eat as much cookie as I want. I'm no longer going to listen to you telling me not to eat, you know, other things, do other things, you know, because you told me this thing that is so good for me. And, and so that, know, that's, that's my fail illustration, my simple illustration of how this sin seizes that opportunity afforded by the covenant, produces all kinds of other covetous desires. And therefore, apart from the law, the sin is dead. That means the si sin almost counter-reacts with the law. Sin almost is this chemical reaction with the law that it almost uses the law as a kind of a material to cause us to, to want to act out against the law. I'll put it that way. So we found a very commandment that was supposed to bring life actually brought death. <laughs> and so all these words like seizing opportunity, deceiving me, putting me to death, it's almost like trickery. You know, it tricks us into thinking that we are doing something that produces life, but actually produces death instead. Verse 13, Did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. How do we understand this? Um, I think just the consciousness that there is this, this sinful nature. So sin here is almost like, like another living thing inside us that we don't even realize it's there until the law comes and the sin grips the law and then we go, hey, where did that come from? <laughs> where did, did that, that nature to want to rebel against God come from? And then you realize, oh, wow, you know, it's there when it produces that temptation, but also the repercussions from that, the death, the punishment that comes from breaking that law that makes us see that sin really is there. It's powerful, it's bad, it's evil, and it's just unavoidable, it's there. And so in order that sin might be recognized as sin, just for us to be conscious <laughs> of how we are unable to, 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 to obey the law, but there is something inside each and every one of us that wants to reject the law to know to know that there's this presence inside of us this nature verse 14 we know that the law is spiritual but i am unspiritual sold as a slave to sin i do not understand what i do for what i want to do i do not do <laughs> but what i hate to do and if i do what i do not want to do i agree that the law is good but as it is as it, it is no longer i myself would do it but it is sin 
living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Um, let's call sin like Mr. Sin. Let's give him a name. You know, actually, I, I have friends whose surname are Sin. <laughs> Sorry about that. And I can't help but thinking about them when I think about Mr. Sin. But imagine inside you, there's this Mr. Sin that forces you to do something that you don't want to do. And this is essentially person, the, this Paul himself saying, you know, I, I, I'm not even in control of my own impulses and my actions, you know. Even when I want to do the good that I want to do, I can't do it. Instead, I end up doing the, the bad that I don't want to do. You know, it's like, like um, what's that movie, Ratatouille, that Disney movie where the guy is cooking, but actually there's this rat on his head pulling the strands of his hair and causing him to do something else. Imagine that the rat is like Mr. Sin pulling all the strands of your heart and of your action and controlling you and saying that you're not in control of your own actions, of your own thoughts, of your own self. And there's this sinful nature, sinful person almost inside of you that's causing you to live a life that you have no control over. Now, um, the thing is, uh, people debate as to is this describing the pre-Christian life when you're a slave to sin or is it describing even the existing Christian life when you're still struggling with that sinful nature and you know both sides have very good arguments um, and if if you are familiar with them um, I hope I've represented that uh, in a fair way I'm, I'm not by no expert by any means but one says you know uh, right now, we are slaves to righteousness. You know, we, we are able, to, we are free, therefore, to obey God. And therefore, we are progressively growing in the sanctification and this ability that God gives us by His grace in order to obey Him. And we actually want to obey the law. And therefore, this is something that's in the past. But some argue that because this describes me now and how, how actually the times when I do sin, I realize that it's still there. There's still that pull that tug towards that old life and therefore some argue that actually this is Paul describing this present Christian life and both have merits to them in either in either case you know it's just realizing just how serious the sinful nature is and not to play around with sin and to be just be conscious therefore whenever you are tempted that therefore to offer your bodies and members to righteousness instead, you know, to, to, to trust in, you know, to want to do God's laws and maybe to occupy your time doing what God wants you to do instead rather than to, you know, find ways to get out of it and therefore to give opportunity for your, your sinful nature to be at work. So verse 21, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from the body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the struggle that's going inside of me, you know, there's this delight in God's law. I want to do it, you know, I love it. But at the same time, there's this pull, this tug to make me want to do the thing that I don't want to do, to be a prisoner of this law of sin and this, this wretchedness 
this struggle. You know, I wish it wasn't so. And again, whether this is describing the pre-Christian life when you had no choice, or the existing Christian life when at least there is that delight in God's law. But thank God, you know, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. So that's our readings for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the realities of this struggle in our lives between wanting to obey sin and the sinful nature inside of us. Thank you for making us aware of that. But also the freedom that comes from trusting in Jesus Christ, that we don't work towards our salvation. He has given it to us by grace. And as part of that, he's given us this freedom from this old nature of sin. Thank you for all the forgiveness that comes from it. But I think from this passage, we also want to pray to give us that grace to continue fighting against sin, to keep putting it to death. Help us not to take this for granted, but to be so conscious that our lives and our purity and our actions and our thoughts, they matter to you. And so we want it to matter to us. We want to be doing the things that you want us to do. We want to live lives that are pure and that are gracious and that are loving. Uh, Lord, just also thinking about friends um, who might be going through anguish like Job. You know, if you have anyone like that, any friends like that, help us to be a good friend who will listen more than you will speak, who will empathize with them and maybe even shed tears and cry and mourn together with them. If anyone listening to this is experiencing such anguish and such pain, uh, Lord, please be with them. Please comfort them. Hear their cries and let them know that they're not alone. Jesus, you have undergone all temptation, all pain, and indeed taken our judgment, our sin upon yourself by dying our death on the cross. You understand what loss is, what pain and desertion is. And Jesus, if anything, please would you be their comfort. Please would you be the person who understands them the most and who is able to give them that satisfaction from knowing that you know this pain and this anguish they go through is not for nothing. You bore their pain on the cross and you're able to give them your comfort and your grace in return. Pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>